perfect. Come on up, Terry. Um, yeah, round of applause. You can get set up here. Um, man, it's been great getting to know you and walking with you, and that is a beautiful encapsulation. No longer a slave to fear, to sin, to the powers of darkness. Um, now learning to live into the freedom and joy of being a child of God, all because of Christ's grace. And so I've just invited uh, Terry to share a little bit about his journey and kind of answering the question of why has he decided to be baptized today? And then afterwards, I'll explain how the baptism will work for those of you who are maybe unfamiliar with it. So here you go. Thank you. And good morning. I am uh, happy that our creator of the heavens and the earth saw fit to give us an instruction manual uh, of the universe and life and everything. And as uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So I hope you have some time because this could take a while. Now I'm kidding because I managed to simplify what I have to say down to my title, Why Am I Being Baptized? And as God's wisdom can be as simple or as complicated as needed for understanding, doesn't work, doesn't work, it's all God's will. <laughs> so as God's wisdom can be simple or as complicated as need be for understanding, uh, I like to complicate things, so I really wanted to study the act of baptism before I did, did so. And I looked into the baptism of Paul, and uh, I found two verses, one Acts 9.18 and Acts 22.16, and they're very simple. Uh, the first one is just said he regained his sight and was baptized. The second one, I like even better because it says, now and why do you wait? What are you waiting for? Uh, rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so, very simply, the first reason that I'm being baptized is number one, is obedience. Because God says so. Now I'm blessed to be a parent. And I really like and understand God's relationship with us in the metaphor of the parent, God the Father. And I can, as a parent, get the hint of the deep divine disappointment in Genesis 3.11. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, where have I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And I find myself wishing that I could undo the original sin of disobedience and just obey. And again, as a parent, I know what I'm trying to impart wisdom, advice in life, and my child is not wise enough or mature enough to understand. And we hope beyond hope that our child would trust us and that a simple, because I said so, because I said so, will suffice. As we know, that is rare. And when studying the subject of baptize, uh, baptism, I thought of all the reasons for me to be baptized and this was the simplest. I could just follow God's command and be obedient to God. But there is another reason that was impossible to ignore. Upon my salvation, I was struck by and entered a state of repentance. 
Life can no longer stay the same. Now, my story is one of being born and raised in a Christ-filled home. Christian schools, the church was the center of our social lives, and I was a missionary kid that could imitate Christianity very easily. I think I even thought of myself as kind of a genetic Christian and that I could inherit it. And even though I would describe myself as a Christian, it was more of a cultural designation. And I walked proudly under the banner, I'm a good person. But because of the wages of sin is death, as told us in Romans 6.23, I find myself last November in what I describe as the dark night of the soul. I was weeping because my life was a mess. I was surrounded by dead and dying relationships, most terrifyingly in my own family, which had fallen apart. The death of my dreams and the death of my joy. And as I wept, I didn't really realize I was praying and weeping to the Lord. But when I started to study for baptism with Pastor Jeff, as I told you, I like to complicate things. <laughs> but he suggested I read Romans 6, and I did a study in Romans 6. And I have heard that Romans 6 to be defined as the most profound chapter in the Bible. And I do believe each one of us as a Christian should study it because it is very profound, and I highly recommend it. But I got to Romans 6.14, and I was right back at that moment weeping because it says, so what benefit did you reap from those things that you are now ashamed of? For the ends of those things is death. And Paul was speaking directly to me, and I had no pride left for my sinful past. All I had left was shame, remorse, and death and decay to show for my life. But as I lay there and thought of the life that I wished and craved for my children and family, and ultimately for everyone all around me, I wanted love, peace, honesty, kindness, and all that I feared and the nightmares that I had for my children and my life, hate, violence, slander, and lies. And then it started to dawn on me. Where had I heard of those attributes before? Why did it sound so familiar? Now, my mother, had claimed a verse for herself, her life, and her children. Proverbs 22.6, it says, Train a child in the way they should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, or he will not turn from it. I cannot emphasize enough, parents, pray over and for your children. I stand here now as living proof of the promise to my mother. So, as the familiarity sunk in, I realized these were Bible verses. I was remembering Galatians 5. All that I hoped and dreamed for in my family were fruits of the Spirit. And everything that I was afraid of, all the nightmares, were sins of the flesh. And I was hit with an instant state of repentance, a desire to change. And baptism is a public declaration of such. I declare a new master, a new life, following the word of God. And now, and then, as we know, God does not leave us in those dark moments of the soul. And so my third reason for being baptized is I can only describe as a yearning, a desire to do righteousness, a desire for righteousness. Now, I'm not demeaning that it's a battle to live Christian lives in the midst of a secular, flesh-driven world. And as Angus Buchan put it, if it wasn't a battle, God would not give us armor, as put forth in Ephesians 6. But Christians have a secret weapon, and I call it a secret, but it is truly not 
a secret. And we should be and are shouting it from the mountaintops that salvation in Christ comes with a yearning for righteousness, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that there's a kind of effortlessness to our Christian life. There is nothing more genuine than the confidence and smile in the eyes of a Christian who wakes up every morning and can't wait to live in God's plan and to live in God's grace. So, to sum it up, why am I being baptized? Number one, because God said so. Number two, because baptism is a public declaration of my state of repentance and a new life in Christ. And three, because I want to. I, learn, I yearn to live in righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Oh, that was awesome, Terry. Awesome. Even a three-point sermon. Well, this is still my job in a few years. It's great. I'm after it. <laughs> so I, um, so I'll, I'll remind everyone at the end of the service, but what we'll do is when the service is over, we'll just dismiss as normal, and then uh, Terry, in following kind of the pattern of Scripture, wants to be baptized in living water. And so we're going to go down to Lakeside Park, and if um, you think of the park, and the parking is on the east side of the beach, and then you go all the way to the left side of the beach, and then if you go over on the walkway, there's a little alcove. We were there when we baptized Johnny, um, and that's kind of a semi-private place where we'll do the baptism, and we'll do that right at noon. And that'll give us about 45 minutes to be able to transition from here down there. Uh, I know my family's going to uh, celebrate with Terry. We're going to do the baptism, and then we're going to stay down there for lunch and play. So if you want to grab a lunch on your way down and join us, you can if you just want to pop in and give Terry a hug after his baptism, and then go on with your Sunday, that's fine. But we'll aim to do it at noon, just so that there's a time, uh, knowing that we're going to gather there. And also, noon is when the sun is highest in the sky. Oh, think about it. Think about it. So let me pray for Terry. This is super exciting. God, what a testimony to your grace. And we thank you that you are a God who pursues, even when we are ignoring you and rejecting you, living under the own delusion that, like um, Terry said, maybe he's just a genetic Christian. Maybe it's just something you can just kind of pick up. But we're not choosing to pursue you, God, and yet you pursue us. That is amazing good news. And we thank you for Terry and all that you're doing in and through him. And just ask that his zeal and his awareness of your grace in his life would just continue. And as he's baptized today, as a public declaration of having clothed himself in the righteousness of Christ, I pray that the depth um, and grandeur of your grace in his life will just continue to humble him and fill him with a holy boldness to share Christ, to pursue you wherever you're calling him. It's a real privilege to be able to celebrate alongside him and uh, thank you for today and all that it represents in his life. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Okay, I'm going to pray for our Sunday school, and then once I'm done praying, you guys can transition upstairs and watch a movie. God, thank you for these little ones, and I know some of them are coming off of a week at camp, and their hearts are just filled with your knowledge and love and goodness, and God, I pray for everyone this morning as they go upstairs and just take in a movie that points towards you that uh, you would do a work in just planting little seeds of the gospel in their heart. Uh, I, I love that in our church, these little ones' earliest memories 
our church is a place that is warm, that is welcoming, that is fun, that is relevant to them, where they get to participate in big church, but then also have a little space for themselves and their friends. May your love and grace surround them this morning. May your presence be felt in the joy and laughter. We bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, you can head upstairs. Okay, so one of my godly ambitions, which uh, I wasn't able to fulfill, was when I was at Camp KCBC last week, I was like, oh, no problem, I'll be able to put together a sermon for Sunday uh, at the same time, no problem. And then as the week went on, and as I saw the week unfolding, and then adjusted my teaching based on conversations that I was having with cabin leaders, students, and just kind of, you always go into those weeks prayerfully saying, God, this is what I'm preparing, but... Do I need to zig here instead of zagging? Um, I just found that all of a sudden Thursday night was here and Friday. And um, yeah, I had done some pre-work of the sermon, but it wasn't in a place that I wanted to continue on in Ephesians. So what I want to do is kind of give a secondary report. Uh, Terry's was the first kind of report testimony, and this will be the second one. And I want to walk us through what that week at KCBC was like. I've been involved in family camps and uh, children's camps for... I don't know how many I've been involved in, six or so, five, five or six, not that many. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so I didn't have the experience of Christian camps when I was growing up. But this week was genuinely really special. And I can say that because that wasn't just my perception. I talked to many other people who've had a much longer tenure in camp ministry than I have. And it, it was something really remarkable to see what God did in and through our time at camp. So what I'd like to do is just kind of walk you through what we taught the kids and what our emphases was each day because I think it really bodes well, or it, I, th I think it's really challenging for all of us. I think there's a lot of leaders, myself included, who in our interactions with the campers realized, wow, this is, this is really tough stuff and we're really challenging the campers to think deeply about their faith and about what it means to walk in Christ and a new, newness of life. So Dan, are we ready to go? Is this thing ready to go? Let's fire it up, see if we can get it going. There we go. So our theme for the week was epic. And epic is defined as a state of being that is beyond the usual or beyond the ordinary. And I use Jesus' pretty familiar statement in John 10.10 10, that he has come, that those who follow him might have life and have it to the full or have abundant life. And I kind of rephrase that as having an epic life, a life beyond the usual and beyond the ordinary, and that how that's what God wants for all of us. That's available to all of us as we connect to the author of life. And so that was our theme moving through the week. And then each day we looked at a different dimension of what it means to live into that epic vision that God has for us. So on the first day, going to just close it. Are you in PowerPoint, Dan? That's okay. There we go. So on the first day, we talked about friendships and how if we want to have an epic life, we need to build epic friendships. And to have epic friendships, we need to be an epic friend. And I asked uh, the students 
what are the ingredients that you need for an epic friendship? So I'll just throw that out to you. What were some of the things that you would say are really important ingredients to having strong, deep, transformative friendships in your life? Just throw out a few. Trust. trust. Yeah, that was actually the first one that, that um, one of the campers said. They said trustworthiness. So absolutely, we need to have friendships where we know we can bring before this person the good and the bad and everything in between, the parts of ourselves that we're proud of, our mistakes, our failures, and they're still going to love us and see us and accept us. Maybe what's another characteristic or ingredient? Respect. That's right. That we're learning to respect and interact with another person in such a way that they know that we see their value, right? When we value someone, you automatically respect them because respect is showing a sign, is an indication that you realize this is someone who deserves to be spoken to in a way that is respectful and treated in a way that is respectful. So we kind of dialogued around some of these ingredients, and I really emphasized that at the start of the week, I wanted to focus on one habit as it relates to building epic friendships, that I wanted all the cabin leaders, all the staff, all the campers to, be, to just be laser-like focused on. And that comes out of a recognition in Proverbs 13 that the power of life and death are in the tongue, that how we use our words is tremendously shaping in terms of tearing other people down and building other people up. So we looked at 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another, build one another up, and kind of that became the theme. We talked about ways that we could do that during uh, the day, during activities, during uh, cabin discussion, devotional times. The way devotions were structured, by the way, we would have a chapel in the morning, a small group, at least a half an hour discussion Bible study time in the afternoon, and then a session in the evening. So there's kind of three major points of intersection with this material. Uh, this was my theme verse for Monday, and Lily Flesseker got really excited about it. I think she likes to memorize really obscure, weird Bible verses. So she went to work right away memorizing this one, and I was like, this is a great one, because no one even would think a verse like this is in the Bible. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor by saying, I was only joking. Wow, I know. Is that really in there? You, you, start, to, you start to comb through. And what I challenged the campers to, but it ended up being an enormous challenge, was just for one day, not even for the whole week, just for Monday, can you not tease, poke, prod, use your words? I mean, I, you know, we talked about bullying and words that are just tremendously hurtful. Obviously, they have no place in camp. But what's a little bit an easier and more even dangerous way to tear down people is to kind of poke, make fun of them. Oh, I'm just joking. I'm just kidding. I talked about that in relationships in my life, how maybe as guys it's really easy to do that. We don't like to feel vulnerable, so we kind of like rib each other. But not like once in a while. Like it just becomes how you bond and connect. Oh, I'm just joking. He knows I'm joking. They know I'm joking. It's not a big deal. I'm just kidding. And I challenge them for one day, none of that. Only use your words to build each other up. Only use your words to encourage one another. And we talked about courage as putting courage into each other, in courage from the Latin. Discourage is to pull courage out. And so I challenged them to do that for one day. And it was amazing to watch them do it. It was amazing to watch cabin leaders, myself, staff, catch ourselves and how easily we slip into ways of needling each other and then covering it over and saying, oh, it's no big deal, just joking. 
And then to see the culture shift as everybody is intentionally suppressing that impulse and looking for ways to encourage one another. And then we kind of hoped that that would build for the rest of the week, and it really, really did. I reminded them of that every day. And uh, this became just a really, really important verse for us. So this is the commitment that they had the first day. I'm only going to use words that encourage and build up. I'm not going to use my words to tease, mock, discourage others. If I do, I'm going to own it right away, say, I'm really sorry, reset, keep going. On Tuesday, we talked about the fact that you can't live an epic life without going through hardship and difficulty. And I talked about the fact that often when we think of things like epic or grand or great or an awesome life, we can equate that with an easy life and a comfortable life and a fun life where we're always doing or experiencing things that are exciting and pleasurable. And actually, the scripture challenges us to think of an epic life in a different way, right? Jesus' invitation into an epic life is not a promise that when we follow him or when we follow God's ways, all the hard stuff's going to get smoothed over. We're going to get a spiritual force field, and then emotionally, physically, relationally, we'll be forever protected from heartache and hardship. That's not the promise. The promise is that God will use the hardships that we go through and turn them towards um, good ends. He will take dead ends, he will take wounds, he will take mistakes that we make and failures, and he can do something in us and through us to redeem them. And so we talked about this a lot and shared about Paul, and one of, the, one of the people who has the most, one of the most epic lives on record. And yet when he's talking about his life, he doesn't necessarily always talk about all the amazing things that God has done in and through him. He talks about being in prison and being flogged and being exposed to death again and again, getting lashed, beaten with rods, pelted with stones, shipwrecked, spent a whole day and night on the open sea, right? I invited the campers to think about, what if you're just floating on a, just a block of wood from a shipwreck? It's like 11 o'clock at night. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. You're still floating there. It's 4 in the morning. You're probably in that moment not thinking like, oh, I'm living my best life now. Like this is, you know, it's not easy. It's not comfortable. It was a hardship. Dangers from rivers, from bandits, from both um, believers in the Jewish Torah and from Gentiles in the city and in the country. He has this laundry list of ways that his life was not hard. But then in Philippians 3, he says, but I consider all of that, it doesn't matter. I know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And so we just talked about the fact that if you want to live an epic life, don't be expecting an easy life. And I think that was really important for us to talk about as a group. An epic life is not an easy life. And in the evening on Tuesday, what we really encourage the students to think through is, of course, suffering and hardship doesn't necessarily make you more mature. It doesn't help you grow. It doesn't necessarily in and of itself bring you closer to God. It's what you do in those hard times. In those hardships, are you turning to God or are you turning from God? Because if we turn to God and pour out our hearts and we don't have to pretend that everything's fine and that we feel good about what's happening, but if we can pour out our hearts to God, if we can turn to Scripture, if we can lean into prayer, if we can rally Christian friends around us, instead of turning away from those things out of resentment to God because we feel like God owes us an easy and good and pleasurable life, 
or keeping God at bay, keeping our Christian friends at bay, uh, snubbing the Bible, shutting off that connection to God through prayer. And that all that does, all turning away from God does is harden our hearts. And so we had a good discussion with the campers around what are ways that we turn to God when we go through hardship. Wednesday. Wednesday was all about epic confidence and faith. We talked at, we looked at da- uh, David, and particularly the story of David and Goliath, and how when all of Israel is cowering, even the king Saul won't take on Goliath. David's not even supposed to be there. He's just delivering food to the front lines. And he hears what's been going on for 40 days where the champion Goliath is calling out God's people and saying, we don't need to go to war, just mano a mano. Send your best champion out to fight me. And David's reaction is just surprised that no one in Israel has done this, that no one has said, this is not right for him to be mocking our God for 40 days in a row. Why hasn't anyone gone out to meet this giant? And so we looked at the story, we uh, looked at David's confidence and how his confidence in himself, not maybe quite right to call it self-confidence, because it was first grounded in knowing the greatness of who God is. So David understood that he served a great God, right? He says that to Goliath, you come against me with all of this weaponry, that's amazing, but I come against you in the name of the Lord my God. And yet at the same time, David knew who he was. When Saul tries to put armor on David and say, I'll send you out to fight the giant, but you've got to wear my armor. Otherwise, you're, you're toast. David puts it on, and the scripture says it doesn't fit him correctly, and so he decides not to wear it. And I use that as a way to talk to the students about how you're going to have people in your life who are going to say, hey, you want to be successful? You want to, if you want to really um, matter, if you want to be popular, if you want to be successful, you have to wear this armor. It might literally be, you have to wear these kinds of clothing, but it also be, could be, you have to wear this kind of attitude. You have to be someone that you're not. And so we talked about how important it was, especially at that age, to begin to know who they are, who God is, and who God has made them to be. Because Saul comes along and says, hey, you know what, I know what's best for you. You need to now shift into like warrior mode. You need to be a warrior. And David's like, but God's made me a shepherd. So if I was going to face the giant, wouldn't I face him as a shepherd? And so just using that as a metaphor to talk about how when we know who God is, when our confidence is high in God, then we also have a settled confidence in who God has made us. That's different than arrogance. Arrogance is we think we're better than other people. Confidence is knowing who God is and knowing who God has made you. And talked about how at that time of life, that's a time of life where students are starving to have that kind of confidence, but it can only be found in a relationship with God and learning about themselves in relationship to God and serving God. But in the evening, uh, that evening got kind of pretty intense because we talked about the fact that a lot of people want to have epic confidence. They would love to have that kind of faith. They would love to be able to, like David, walk out into life and face down the different Goliaths that confront them, peer pressure and all the other stuff that students are dealing with today. But... We also looked at Moses, who when he was invited into an epic life, his reaction was to say, ooh, I'd love to, but I'm not qualified for that. He says, pardon your servant, Lord, but I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. 
But the Lord said, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes the, them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? It, it, is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And so Moses saw a deficiency that he had. God says, I'm going to have you go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh something. And Moses is like, but I, I'm a... I'm a stutterer. I, he, I can't speak eloquently. You need someone charismatic, big presence, smooth-tongued. You've got the wrong person. So on one level, Moses was saying, because of this limitation that I have, this disability, I can't live with that kind of epic faith and epic connection to God. But Moses also had another thing that was holding him back, and that was because he was on the run for murdering an Egyptian. So he looked at his past and said, I've done something in the past that disqualifies me from God's future for me. And so on two levels, Moses was kind of self-selecting out of God's call on his life. And the third thing that can sometimes happen to us, I talk to the students about, where we say, that kind of confidence is just for like super like Christians. Like if you're like David and you have big faith and you're always making the right decisions and being awesome, yeah, of course. But like, what if I've done something in my past to really mess things up? What if I have a disability or a limitation? Or what if something's been done to me? I've suffered abuse or mistreatment. And out of that abuse or mistreatment, I just think, I'd love to live with epic confidence, but I don't think God can use someone like me. And so I talked to the students about that lie and about how the scripture is about a God who loves to use people who are even blind to their own potential in him and how mistakes that we've made in the past are not a limiting factor in living into God's mission. Having experienced deep hurt or abuse in the past is not a limiting factor. God can bring healing and restoration to those places. And the limitations that we hold very close to our chest and that we magnify and amplify in ourselves, those limitations, not only can God use us in spite of them, but God often chooses to use us through them. They're the very means through which. We think, well, God can do I'm sure awesome stuff with the best and the brightest and the most popular and the most athletic and the most dynamic and the most charismatic and the most together. And yet the biblical story again and again is how God comes into the lives of ordinary broken sinners and says, I have a mission for you. And even when they say, oh, you, you must have made a mistake, God. It's like sincerely. God says, I'm going to go with you. and I'm commanding you to go. And God does amazing things through their lives. On our last full teaching day on Thursday, we talked about choices. We talked about how little choices that we make can stack. Little choices like brushing our teeth or not. Um, I don't think I did it all week long, but I think starting Tuesday or Wednesday, I, I morphed, the, the parent in me took over and I morphed in our benediction into, as you go, God, know that God loves you. Know that God wants you to brush your teeth and go and have a great night's rest because we've got a big day tomorrow. But we talked about how little decisions like that, whether to include our friends or not, whether or not to, to deceive or lie to people versus tell the truth, those little decisions can stack. 
And over time, these choices really do shape our lives. And then there are bigger choices that we face as we maybe get older. What school are we going to go to? What career path are we going to pursue? What kind of person are we going to seek to uh, connect with and marry? And we talked about how epic choices are choices in big and small things between choosing God's way and then maybe a way that seems right to me or a way that the world or culture around me is saying, oh, this is the way, walk in it. So we talked about all the different pathways that we're going to experience and all the different choices that we're going to make. And I really encourage them to um, make the right choice. We looked at the choice facing two pretty prominent biblical figures. The first that we looked at is the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. He has everything. Uh, Most of the students knew who this was. Mark Zuckerberg, owner of Facebook, has everything from a worldly point of view, but he comes to Jesus. We just inserted, inserted the Zuck into the story. And he said, Jesus, I've got everything. I'm powerful. I have all kinds of global influence. I'm popular. I'm young. I've got my health. But what must I do to inherit eternal life? And ultimately, Jesus whittles Zuckerberg down to saying, I want you to give up on that life, and I want you to come and follow me. And the scripture says the rich young ruler walked away sad because he had great wealth. And that wealth, not just material wealth, but certainly that, but just wealth of popularity, prestige, power. He had everything that everyone else on the outside looking in says, that guy's got it made. He is hashtag blessed. That's amazing. And then we looked at another person who gets invited into something by Jesus, and that was Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul. He's on the road. He's pretty prominent within the Jewish community. He's pretty powerful. He's kind of like a religious hitman. He's going after Christians and imprisoning them and executing some of them has an encounter with Jesus on the road. Jesus commands him to go and begin following him, and Saul obeys Jesus. Now, the interesting thing, I said, we never hear from the rich ruler again in the rest of the Bible. He just fades off into obscurity. But this Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, he goes on to live one of the most epic lives ever, which is really interesting because in the moment, if you were in the crowd watching, you would have probably thought the rich young ruler was making the right decision. You have everything. You come to some Jewish rabbi who says, leave it all behind and follow me. And however it was presented, the rich young ruler says, thanks, but no thanks. How many people are sitting there that day saying like, yeah, hello, do not give up. Jesus hasn't even told you where he's going. Don't listen. You made the right decision. That was a good decision. That was not a good deal. Um, solid on you. And yet Saul looked like he was making the wrong decision. Saul, you're going in this direction. Stop. Come follow me. Again, you're going to have to leave your whole life. You're going to have to live all the power and social prestige that your religious position affords you. Paul talks about all the different religious acumen that he brings to the table. I know in today's day and age, being a religious authority figure doesn't mean very much, but back in those days, they were like the celebrities of their culture, hugely influential. And Jesus says, I want you to leave all that behind, Saul. And he says, yes. And if you would have been there to see that, you'd be like, dude, what are you doing? I I do not think this is a good idea. You've got your whole life set up. You're on the right path. Just ignore Jesus and keep going. And so we talked about how the choice to choose Jesus is difficult because we're going to have people around us 
who are going to look at our decision to choose God's ways in little ways and big ways and saying, that is so dumb. You do you. You carve out your own path. Don't let anyone tell you how to live, including God. You figure that out for yourself. You, you put yourself at the center. Trust in your own understanding. And yet the Bible says that way leads to death. It sounds reasonable from a humanistic point of view, but it leads to death. And so in the evening, we talked about the ultimate choice that we can make. And I used the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the final Endgame movie as a way into talking about that. To say what was amazing about this, how many people here are fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Have seen at least three or four movies? Put your hand up. You don't have to be embarrassed. It's not a sin or anything. So you've got a 22-movie series, in a sense, that are linked together, made over 10 years, and the intention at the start of those 10 years was to weave subplots of those movies and characters together towards a particular endgame. And they called the final movie Endgame. So it was a pretty amazing undertaking. They made a whole universe, and then alluding and giving, dropping hints and clues about where it was going, but none of the threads all come together until the very, very final movie. And in that movie, we learn, no spoilers, but an epic sacrifice by one of the main characters basically saves the day. An epic sacrifice allows the powers of sin and darkness to be broken, and it opens up a possibility for a new future. And so we talked about how sometimes in our own lives growing up when we're 8, 10, 13 years old, our life just looks like a bunch of different events and relationships and things that are happening. But there's an end game. And those experiences, however random they seem or strange, they are being woven together by God in, for a larger purpose. And that's not just happening at the level of the individual. That's happening at the level of history as well. History is not just going to go on and on and on and on forever. There's an end game. And that end game is alluded to by Paul in Colossians 1 to 15, where Jesus is presented as the end game of everything. He's the point. He's presented throughout the New Testament as the culmination of everything that has come before and the point of our lives, of human history. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so Jesus makes the choice of choices, the most epic choice to leave heaven, to leave a life of ease and comfort, and not just enter into hardship, but enter into hell on earth, and to sacrifice himself for us, to break the powers of sin and darkness, which imprison us and which prevent us from moving in this life and in the life to come into epic connection with God. And so we use that as a way to talk about the fact that the most epic choice you can make is to give your life to Jesus and follow him.
Because that's the choice on which all other godly choices hinge. And that's the choice that doesn't just change the horizon line of hope for this life, but for all of eternity. Now, I talked about choices with the students. I shared about how I would love for them to embrace Christ and to give their lives over to Christ. But I also am aware, pastorally and from experience, the power that you wield at a speaker at camp. If I wanted to, I could say certain things, I could play certain music, I could emphasize certain scriptures that could make every single hand of that room jet up and say, oh, yeah, I totally want to be a Christian. But it would be manipulative and could very easily be very coercive. And I said, I'm not going to do that. Instead, what I want you to do is I want you to be ready. I want you to know there's going to come a time in your life, maybe it's happening right now, maybe it's a week from now, maybe it's a year from now, where God is going to speak to your heart. You might not hear it in your ear, but it's going to be spoken to your heart. And you're going to hear in some way Jesus saying, I want you to leave your life behind. I want you to follow me. I want you to give your life to me. And I said, when that time comes, I want you to remember the rich young ruler. I want you to remember Saul of Tarsus. And I want you to remember that the only way you can really have an epic life is to be reconciled, reconnected to the God who is the author of life. And I said, when that voice speaks to your heart, I pray that you will say yes. And what was really amazing is that in talking afterwards, a few days later, I was talking to one of the cabin leaders, and they said, at least one girl there, um, through a series of conversations coming out of a small group, she decided to yield her heart to Jesus. After the cabin leader talking with her and explaining what that means and having them look up scriptures together, and the cabin leader kind of doing the same thing. This is not something to rush into. This is not something that we just do because we're at camp or because maybe our parents want us to. No one can choose for you. You have to choose for yourself. And she did. And I love stories like that. I love the fact that it's been a long time since we've been able to celebrate an adult baptism. Because the negative way to look at that is to say, well, something's not happening because we're not having baptisms all the time. But the positive way to understand it is to say, the baptisms and the yielding of lives to Jesus that we are getting, it's much more likely that they're fully sincere and fully committed. Because when you decide to give your life to Jesus in a place like Nelson, it's not because it's socially advantageous. It's not because there's all this momentum where you're like, oh, there's all these advantages that will accrue to me socially if I say I've become a Christian. You are swimming against the stream. And especially when we put a little bit of brakes on and to say, why are you doing this? And then Terry digs into scripture and says, I'm digging into Romans 6. This is why, this is what's happening in my life. Then pastorally, I love that because I never have to wonder, I wonder if this is just like some, you know, a kid at camp's doing it because their older sibling is doing it or, you know, three of their friends did it. So even though I can report we had one kid give their life to Jesus, we had over 30 kids dialed in to these messages all week long. And, you, and people can testify that we're there. Justin can testify in the worship, unbelievably powerful worship. Kids were dialed in in the teachings, the discussions. And I want to thank and highlight a few things from this week. First of all, I want to thank the campers. If you are involved in of any of the campers who went, grandparent, friend, parent, 
This was easily the best group of students to connect with and to enjoy all week long. They were fantastic. They rose to every challenge. It was awesome. We didn't have blazing hot weather most of the time, but they just rolled with the punches. We were playing big groups in the, in the rain. We had to cancel the Pebble Beach trip, which was a big highlight on Thursday. Most of them were like, yep, no problem. We just did extra fun stuff. They were awesome. Uh, Justin and the worship team did a phenomenal job uh, leading the kids in worship. Again, they really responded by being dialed in. I think, I don't even know how many times we had to kind of give a, okay, guys, focus, settle down. I mean, maybe not many. I mean, maybe two, two times over the whole week. Our kitchen staff was amazing, um, amazing food and great cleanup and positive attitude. They were awesome. And I want to especially call out our cabin leaders, senior and junior cabin leaders. Some of them are here this morning. I don't want to call them out by name because I'm going to miss some of them. But if you find out that one of our youth, many of our youth volunteered to be junior cabin leaders and senior cabin leaders, we skewed very young this year. We had a lot of junior leaders at age 14 and some senior leaders at 15 or 16. And when Rick gave me the list of the leaders, my thought was like, ooh, this is, this is a, that's a young group. And a lot of prayer went into it. Uh, Rick did a lot of pre-work with them. And they were absolutely amazing. Not just when they had to be on, but they were just on the whole time, watching them interact with students, watching them from a distance as they see a student kind of meandering, not in, being included in anything, coming alongside them, bringing them into stuff. One-on-one -on -one connections. I saw them pouring into my children and other people's kids. And if you have a cabin leader that, were, that was there, please, please, uh, parents, be incredibly proud of your um, teenager, because I can honestly say I have never seen a group of cabin leaders sustain that level of excellence and energy and servant leadership for that week. So that, they were amazing. And thank you to Carrie, our camp nurse, who did an awesome job, and Rick, who was our pastor of the week, and just kind of being a floating pastoral presence, also leading the games at the last minute. The games person had to bow out of the week, and so he organized a lot of the big uh, group games. Joy, who was our uh, kind of incoming assistant camp director, and then Jack. I don't know how many of you know Captain Jack from the camp. This is his 20th year, and this is his final year being camp director. <clears throat> so it was really special on the Friday and the culmination of our time together to gather around Jack and pray. And there are many tears, and it was just a really powerful, powerful, um, beautiful week. And so I just want to say thank you, and I want to use that report as a way to say I know for some people, Camp KCBC can feel a little out of mind, and, and um, we don't always do a full report, but I just really felt compelled to do it this year. It was just an amazing week, and so many positive things happened. And so for those of you who were praying, who made us cookies, who were just encouraging us, who were following along, um, please, please know that we're deeply appreciative for all the ways that you built into our campers. So that's the report, and I will... Close in prayer and invite up the team. God, thank you for the week that was and for every single camper there, for the, that little girl who sincerely and honestly gave her life to you. May you just surround her by your grace and your love and bring the people and resources that she needs to grow in her faith and to grow in that epic confidence in you. And we thank you for every single person who in ways big and small built into this the week, the week that was. 
And God, it was so special to be a part of and so humbling to be a part of. And we just give you all the praise and glory and just ask that all the seeds that were sown, all the momentum that was built would just continue in the days and weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Jeff.